meeting, and we will get back to that passage a little later in our lesson. I want to welcome everybody that's here today. We have a really good number, and that's good. The weather is nice today, and the last uh, three weeks or so, two, I think, out of the last three weeks, whatever it is, we've had uh, not so great a weather, but uh, good to see everybody. And if you're visiting, and I know we have visitors out there, uh, we're glad you're here, and we want you to come back with us and be with us at every opportunity you have. And if you will, and you see a visitor's card just in front of you, we'd like for you to fill that out for us. We'd appreciate that. We're going to go back this morning and round out, uh, finish the look we've been doing at various attempts by different groups to be more holy. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I'm going to get right into the lesson. You've seen this picture several times, and I will revisit it. Basically, the reason that I put this mountain up here is because it, it depicts, I think, the, the sentiment, the idea, the attitude that many of us have in which we see God as Isaiah did, high and lifted up, maybe at the top of a mountain, so to speak. And we see ourselves down here, maybe at the bottom of a mountain. And what we recognize is that there is a great difference between us and God even though as we just read from 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, God is saying, be holy, or you shall be holy, for I am holy. We've talked about holiness. We've talked about the fact that, that, that holy means, holiness means something that is set apart, or holy does, something that is set apart, something that is even different. And especially in a religious sense, when we're talking about the idea of God, we're talking about something that is to be revered, something that's to be awed, something that is greater or different in that sense from anything else. And so man looks at God and he recognizes the holiness of God, Christians certainly do, and he looks at himself and all he sees is just this great separation between us. And so... I've represented it by this big, bold, red arrow to show that's how far we would have to go to meet God, to be holy like God. God's people often recognize the separation and will admit, I know I am a saint. From the day I was baptized, I became a saint. I became a Christian. But I want to be more holy. And if you're sitting here today and that's how you feel, that you look at yourself and you say that, you know, I could... A lot of room for improvement. There's a lot I could do to be more holy in my life. Then you would join the ranks of all these people we've been talking about. You might look at the whole process of living the Christian life as a journey up a mountain, so to speak. And that it will take time. And that you will have to put forth effort and so forth to, quote, unquote, perfect your personal holiness, as 2 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about, or as Peter talks about that journey in 1 Peter 1. We come back to the idea idea of Isaiah chapter 2, and this is our basic passage for this quarter, in which there is a call to come up to the mountain of the Lord's house that is established in the top of the mountains. And there, there is the idea for us to be taught of God, For him to teach us of his ways in that passage. So that, and I'd like for you to turn with me to James 4. I'm going to introduce this passage, and it's one I will focus on in the weeks to come. But if you look at James chapter 4, in which James calls out to Christians and says, in verse 4, You adulterers 
and adulteresses. And here would be the idea of one who is not living faithfully to God in any respect, in any aspect. And how he would go on to say in verse 5, do you think that the scripture would say in vain, the spirit within us lusts to envy? And that is the idea of the separation between us. But notice as he goes on to say in verse 6, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. And so this is what we're emphasizing. Drawing near to God, getting close to God, being more holy so that I am meeting God, I am coming up the mountain, as it were, to be holy. Now, having said all of that, we've noted that there have been notable attempts by God's people throughout history to come up to that standard of holiness, recognizing that there is that separation, saying to themselves, I want to be more holy. And we've looked at some of those. We talked about the Jews and how there was a movement among the Jews as they began to be more worldly, as outside influences did cause them to lose holiness in their lives. And so there was the beginning of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, the very word in Aramaic, means to separate to be separate from the world, as God would say. Come out from among them in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, and be ye separate. And we also looked at the Amish, who maybe took that separation to another level, but who recognized that if you're going to live in the world, you can't live like the world, and really they saw it as an impossibility and still do to this day, that if you're in the world, you're going to be corrupted by it. And so the idea is to come out and be separate. And we looked at that, and we will revisit some of those ideas again. Last week we looked at the Wesleys, John and Charles. And these are the ones who are behind, at least, some of the ideas that led to the Methodist church. But when they were students in college, how they formed that holy club and dedicated themselves, admirably dedicated themselves, to living every hour of every day as a holy individual, and really pursued that and dedicated themselves to that. But we've also noted that in each case, while the goal was to restore a personal, holy relationship with God, that there is the natural, and in all these cases, realized danger of legalism, that is, making laws where God didn't make them, of ritualism, of ritualism where it stops being this real dedicated pursuit of personal holiness and becomes just another set of rituals or motions to go through. And there was also in each case, certainly, the breeding of a separatist, that is, I want to be different and I don't want to be like you. A separatist, if not elitist disposition. Not just I want to be different from you, But I am different from you because I'm better than you. And there was that that crept in, and certainly to be avoided. Now, having said all of that, let's look at one last great attempt. And that is among our own brethren. I know some of you are familiar. I don't know how many of you necessarily, but I do know some of you are familiar with the Crossroads Movement. We'll talk a little bit about it. Maybe up here in the Northeast you know it better as the Boston Movement. And some of you, and especially younger ones of you, 
might be familiar with the ICC, and we'll talk more about that. It began in Florida with the 14th Street Congregation, I believe it was called the 14th Street Congregation, in Gainesville, Florida. And that name was changed to the Crossroads Church of Christ. Now, some of you will be familiar with Crossroads, and I I know that for a fact, but the Crossroads Church of Christ. That was way back in 1967. Down in the late 70s, Montel and I were in Florida, in Tampa, in college, and I began to hear, especially among some of the younger students who were going to preach and so forth, have you heard about the Crossroads Movement? It was really gaining steam in the late 70s. Its leading proponents were Chuck Lucas, who was the preacher at Crossroads when we were down there in Florida. Chuck Lucas and his convert, Kip McKean. And you may or may not know either one of those names, but Kip McKean, who later moved from Florida to Boston. And in fact, by 1988, McKean was regarded as the leader of the movement. So you can see how in 21 years it went from Chuck Lucas and the Crossroads Church of Christ and the movement within that one church. It had grown to be a movement now, and and McKean in Boston is regarded to be the leader of the movement by the, the late 1980s. By the late 1980s, there was a lot being written in the papers. Some of you are familiar with that. A lot being discussed nationally, not just locally in Florida, but nationally. By the late 1980s, McKean, the now the leader of the movement, and something that I'll say about him, you'll notice I say up here with McKean stipulating each member must be quote-unquote totally committed The idea of being totally committed. McKean, when he went to, and I believe it was called the Lexington Church of Christ at that time in Boston, when he went to that church, he only agreed to go to be the preacher there if each member would commit totally to the whole philosophy that he was bringing into that church. And so was born, really, what's known as the Boston Movement. Now, you'll notice that I put up here, you might ask the question, okay, why do all of this? What's it all about? I'm about to talk about what it is about, but let's first of all note its effectiveness, because it was its effectiveness that became the selling point. Its effectiveness was that McKean moved to Lexington Church of Christ, that later changed its name, or really quickly changed its name, to the Boston Church of Christ, and they grew from 30 to 3,000 in 10 years. So you can imagine in 10 years' time, now I've been here over 10 years, and we haven't grown like that. So 30 to 3,000, we're not talking about 10-fold, we're talking about 100-fold they grew. The effectiveness became the selling point, and a great emphasis was placed on the number of conversions. In different ways and in different degrees, I'm sure we've all seen that. It is important for us to grow. It is important for us to convert people. It is important for us to obey the passage that Georgie read from us from Matthew 28. In fact, I'd like for you to turn back to Matthew 28, and we'll focus on that passage a couple of times in the rest of the lesson. It is important for us to obey God in doing that. But when numbers become the focus, I want you to understand the difference that I'm talking about here. The passage is what should be the focus. The idea 
of converting people of verse 19, making disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should be the focus. But what happened in this movement, the success itself became the focus. The numbers became the focus. The growing from X to X became the focus. And so what happens when you have something as being the focus then all cost, at all cost, you maintain the focus. And that's what happened in this movement. As we pursue the idea and we look at what went on, why they would grow from 30 to 3,000, they emphasized evangelism. They had all the way back there with Chuck Lucas in 1967. But they emphasized evangelism, and especially on the college campus and on college campuses now literally around the world, But it's more than evangelism, it is more of a discipling movement. I want you to read with me Matthew 28 again. Now, Georgie read it for us, but let's highlight a couple of points here. First of all, notice, Jesus was saying to the apostles, we go back to verse 16, we see that. He was saying to the apostles, you go out on the basis of my authority, verse 18. You go, in verse 19, and you make disciples. I know the King James says, teach all nations. Most of your translations say, make disciples of all nations. How do you make a disciple? We could talk about what is a disciple, but a disciple is a student, a learner, a dedicated follower of a master. You go make disciples. And you do that by baptizing them. And then, verse 20, you teach them. And so the idea among Lucas and McKean especially and some of the others that joined this movement were converted, etc., The focus was on what they called the discipling of the individual. Notice, not the baptism necessarily of the individual, although that was important, and it still is to them. But the discipling, this idea, verse 20, of teaching them. And they called for, and you'll notice some of the things I put down here, you may have read through it already, but they called for a high level of personal commitment. In other words, if I'm going to baptize you and you are going to be a member of the church, I want total commitment. You're not just being baptized. And we say that. Wes and I teach that. You're not just being baptized because once baptized, always saved. No. You have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So they discipled them. And they called for commitment and accountability. And time was taken up. There was a mentoring system. Now, what is a mentor? Well, a mentor is someone who leads you and guides you and teaches you in all aspects of whatever it is, and in this case, in all aspects of being a disciple of Christ. Now, we might look at that and say, well, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, really, we want someone to go on and learn all the aspects of it. That's right. And so there was a mentoring system in which there was, and there still is, an intimate religious atmosphere of what they call soul talks. I'm not going to get deeply into that this morning, but I will in some of the lessons upcoming. Soul talks. But the idea of really getting together and sharing on a deep level what's going on with your soul, what's going on with mine, and how we need to improve and all of that kind of thing. There was a lot of prayer, but there were prayer partners that were developed. Someone with whom you could gather and really on a repeated basis, on an ongoing, regular basis, and pray together. And again, I might look at that and I might say, that's good for Christians to pray together. And it is. But what was happening was a new Christian. Look at Matthew 28 again here. 
You apostles will go baptize people, and you will teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you, which would include baptizing people and teaching them, wouldn't it? And so the idea was we're going to take a, a deeper look at Matthew 28, and we're going to say there needs to be a pairing of an older, seasoned guide with a younger, new convert so that they can teach them and give them personal help and direction. And there will be this in-depth involvement in their life. And one of the problems, certainly, with Christianity, and, and don't misunderstand, as we practice it, okay? I'm not saying it's a problem with Jesus' system. It's perfect. But as we practice it, we tend too often to baptize people, basically hand them a Bible, and say, have at it. And that's fine, except oftentimes people are just overwhelmed by it all, you know? And they're like, uh, well, what do I do next? So this system sought to really guide them every single step of the way. The movement rapidly grew. You might look at that and you might say, I don't want somebody in my life 24 hours a day. Well, if you wanted to be a Christian and you saw it as the only way to go from wherever you are to where you want to be, you might like that. And people do like that. Order and structure. And we go on and on with those type terms and people are like, yeah, I like that. So it rapidly grew, especially among younger members. They appreciated the emphasis on the personal commitment. They appreciated the whole communal effort. It's all a community. Everybody joining in together. Not like just a bunch of individuals that are out here on their own and we kind of come together on Sunday, see each other, shake each other's hand, and go back out here splintered once again. And so they liked all of that. And every single member of every single congregation was supposed to be as Kip our, yeah, as Kip McKean had said, totally committed. You've got to be committed to the system. Not just baptized, but committed to the system to A, be discipled, and B, eventually be the mentor who can disciple other people. And if you did that, you're going to grow. No question about it. You're going to grow. And they did. And so there was that total commitment to personal growth and, quote, unquote, making disciples of all nations. Now, let's be fair for a moment. Does Jesus teach that in any sense? Well, yes. If I look at Matthew 28, there is a sense in which the Lord is exactly saying, go out and make disciples, enroll them as it were. You've heard me use that terminology many times. Sign them up. Enroll them into the discipline of Christianity. Make a disciple by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't end there. Teach them. And the Lord's church is designed to be a community of believers in which new converts are taught. That's why, if you're visiting here today and you come in and you begin to ask questions about this church, you will quickly find that there is so much emphasis on teaching. Our worship services have a block of time set aside every single week, every single time to study the Bible together, as we're doing right now. 
before our worship service. We have Bible study. When we come together on Wednesday night, we have Bible study. Why are we doing all of that? Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. There should be an atmosphere of teaching. And if you will, if you want to borrow the terminology, and I'd be careful about borrowing it, but there should be this discipling going on. For example, one of the passages that is emphasized quite a bit, and I was reading some of the current material and seeing a lot of this. Turn over to Titus 2 for a moment. There is a great emphasis, especially today, on this older to younger arrangement. And they'll point often to to Titus chapter 2, and you can see I put verses 1 through 8. But just notice as you scan down through these verses, aged men that they be, and notice how he says self-controlled and sound in the faith, and all aged women, verse 3, that they likewise be in behavior as becomes holiness and so forth, that they may, verse 4, teach the younger women how to be sober and love their husbands and love their children and be discreet or, you know, have good sense and all of that kind of thing. And the young men, verse 6, likewise, encourage them to be sober-minded. Now, if I were looking at that passage, I might say God says for older to teach younger. And if I said that, I'd be right. And you'd say that's exactly what the passage is saying. And so we would look at that and we would say, You know, as I begin to look at some of these verses they're emphasizing, that's two of the main ones, those passages, two of the main ones. I look at that, I say, those are good ideas. And maybe even this idea of intimate soul talks or discussions going on between two people or getting together with someone and doing a lot of praying and and even confessing, being accountable, confessing my faults to each other. Jesus talked about that. The Bible talks of that. So those are good ideas, and that's right. They are. And that, you know, we'll look at that even further. But let's first of all note the fact that there are dangers. As we look at the whole Crossroads Boston movement, we realize that it began down in Gainesville, and they were operating from within the Fellowship of Churches of Christ. In other words, this was just another local congregation in Gainesville, Florida. But there are elite differences. More and more and more as time went on, they were different, and they established that difference. And it led even to a formal separation in 1993. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that by 1993, there were 103 churches, not just Gainesville any longer, not just Crossroads, not just Boston, but there were 103 congregations around the world who were so different and who were so much in fellowship just with one another that they divided from the churches of Christ and became the international churches of Christ. And now they are a separate denomination. They do not recognize fellowship with the churches of Christ. Years ago when I first came here, there was a sister within this congregation, and she was being attracted to this movement. And when she left this congregation, we had a discussion. And I said to her some of these very things, that there are problems with this group. No, it is just like we are here at East Orange. I said, no, it is not. And I'll be glad to sit down with you and discuss those differences. She said, I would rather have my preacher discuss that with you and I'd be in the tent. I said, great. 
You go ask him, and we will sit down together and we will discuss this. And I said, but what you're going to find is, he is going to tell you, no, we are not in fellowship with East Orange, and I don't want to talk to him. And that's exactly what happened. The danger in it is becoming just like the Pharisees or any of these other groups we talked about in which we recognize the great difference and now we don't want to be like that old group so we are going to formally declare a separation. And so they did. Because you see the emphasis on numbers and retention of numbers. How many numbers do we have in in attendance? How many people have we been able to retain over the years we baptized? When one gets so carried away with numbers and takes the focus off of autonomy to start with, what is autonomy? Let's mention it again. I'm sure we know this, but let's mention it. Autonomy literally means self-rule. What is that? It means that each congregation governs itself. We don't have a group of leaders in Boston or wherever who are going to come into this church and tell us what we need to be doing here at East Orange because together we look at the Bible and we see what the Lord wants and that's enough. And so each congregation governs itself. It's like 1 Peter chapter 5. Even when elders are appointed, they don't answer to a board somewhere as in a denomination. The elders which are among you, Peter said in verse 1. And as he goes on to say, let the elders among you. And literally the term there means by your side. That is, in your midst. They are the ones who are appointed to leadership. And they give account, verse 4, to the chief shepherd. And that's Jesus. The Boston movement had leaders that would come into a congregation like ours and reconstruct the congregation. Now think about that term there. We're going to say we recognize problems at East Orange. I hope you do. None of us are perfect. No church is perfect. And no group of human beings is perfect. And that's why we'll have a business meeting today and we'll meet at other times and different ones of you will gather together and we'll talk about how we can do better. And that's a great thing. As long as we're looking to the Bible and saying, how does Jesus want it done? But to look at a group of people who are successful and say, let's bring them in to reconstruct, rebuild the church at East Orange. That's not what the Lord called for. They were planting new churches. And that's a good thing if they're being planted, of course, on the foundation of Jesus. But more than that, of those 103 congregations, they were reconstructing the Lord's church, rebuilding it. And that's the problem. The emphasis on numbers and retention of numbers superseded autonomy and even the authority of the Lord. Likewise, the evangelism, going out and teaching the gospel, baptizing people, helping people to grow in Christ, gave way to discipling. And you'll hear me mention that term a lot in some of the coming months. Not because I want this at East Orange. There are good points and bad points. But the discipling. The personal commitment, which is a good thing. The holiness, which is a good thing, came to depend on mentoring. In other words, if I had converted you or if I had been assigned to you to disciple you, 
Your personal commitment, your personal holiness would depend on me. And that's just not right. I'm never going to stand up here and tell you, if you want to be holy, listen to me. You listen to Jesus. And so the discipling, the mentoring, the submission. You'll always hear me teach. I believe in submission. I believe in submission of all of us to one another. I believe in special submission, as I taught last year, you know, children to parents, etc., I believe in submission, but ultimately I believe in submission to Jesus. That's the Lord. But submission, help and direction required complete accountability. In other words, if you want help, be accountable to me, was the idea. I'm your mentor. And as with all human efforts, there were widespread. I'm not going to get into all of that. You can read about it for yourself but widespread, gross abuses. And you can imagine. And on every, you know, every point in the spectrum up and down, there were widespread, gross abuses. There always will be. So what began maybe with an admirable call, and I think it is, whenever a church says, hey, let's be more evangelistic, let's do a better job of teaching people we baptize, that's great. We need to do that. But what began as an admirable call to evangelism and a high level of personal commitment degenerated into a cultic atmosphere. And that's where the ICC is. And some of you have had personal involvement with that, and you know exactly what I'm talking about in that. The Pharisees. The Amish. The Wesleys. And their holy club especially. The ICC. You know, in each case, these historical attempts to be more holy had their positive points. And we ought to look at those positive points. Or at least what they were saying, whether we know that's who was saying it or not. But when they're good points, they're good points. And yet, as we reconsider them, regarding the whole process or how I might perfect my personal holiness... Let's keep in mind the dangers, because we never want to go there. What we want to do is look at the positive points, and like Jesus said of the Good Samaritan, hey, you go and do likewise. And so I'll draw on some of these things, and I'll say they are good points. And maybe here's how we can do it more in an atmosphere, more in a system personal, not church, more in a system of just commitment to the Lord to be more holy. Are you here today? You're not a child of God. You look at all of this and you say, wow, you know, Christianity is a lot to it. And that's right. But it begins with a simple step. It begins with a person who says to himself or herself, I want to be a Christian. I want to do what the Lord wants me to do. I want to live the kind of life, call it holy, but I want to live the kind of life that is right. If you're here today and you've never been baptized, but you believe in Jesus, that He's the Son of God, and you'll confess that, you will make a commitment to change your life, and it will take your life to do that. But you make that commitment. And today you'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. You will be a saint. You will be a Christian. And you'll begin a life in Jesus Christ. Now maybe you're here and you look at yourself and you say, I've been baptized. 
But I haven't made that commitment, not on the level that I need to make it. And I want to change that. I, I want to be what the Lord wants me to be. And I need help. We'd love to help you. And we'd love to pray together with you. And we'd love to be there for you and help you in any way we can. Do you need to come? Please come while Edward leads us in this song.